So tonight is the second part in a six-part series. I'm talking about the six paramitas, or the six perfections of the Buddha. Last week I talked about generosity. This week I'm going to talk about discipline. And I'll begin by saying that, something I've often said, I think that the cohort of adults alive now in America, we probably are the, the most spoiled cohort of adults that ever walked the face of the earth. And, you know, we all have the internet in our pocket and just like the enormity of that we just take for granted. Um, I think in many cases, society, you know, the capitalist machine is trying to plant in us the expectation that we can have anything we want whenever we want it. And we should expect that, you know, and I think there's all ways that we kind of, you know, feel the tug of these expectations sometimes, you know. So all of that kind of, you know, sets it up to be a little harder to be disciplined in this society. And, but, but of course, you know, you know, anyone who's gone to college or holds a regular job, you know, that requires discipline. Certainly people who come to a Monday night sangha and sit in a 40-minute silent sit, that shows a great deal of discipline, you know. Um, but there's ways that I think we all can, can increase our discipline and become more disciplined. I'll say also, last week I, when I talked about generosity, I talked about all these, 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 you know, wonderful virtuous ways to be generous, and then, then someone gave the feedback, you know, I didn't really share how to cultivate those, those states. And so I thought even, even more so with discipline, it, it, I think it's very important to talk about how to cultivate discipline. And I have, you know, four considerations under that. I think the first is just to recognize and be very honest with ourselves about how powerful discipline is and how much we could benefit from living more disciplined lives. Um, really, I think for all of us, there's, there's all the, the ways that we'd like our life to be better, that we imagine our life to be better, but then there's so much more, you know, discipline would make us more powerful and more satisfied in ways that we can't even imagine from where we are now, you know. So just to recognize and appreciate how much discipline might have to offer to us. And I, I think along these lines, I'll also say to be highly disciplined in this culture is a kind of superpower, you know, and there's really a way, that, a way that each one of the six paramitas is kind of a superpower, you know. So the, the, the first consideration about improving discipline is just recognizing how valuable discipline is. The second is, has to do with self-love. How much do we love ourselves? How much do we value ourselves? Do I see myself as worthy of the effort, you know, this kind of thing. Um, there's a quote on the quote sheet from Race of a Menekin. He says, show me a person who's lacking in self-discipline and I'll show you a person who's lacking in self-love. You know, in so many ways, one of the most profound things we can do for self-care 
is to cultivate more discipline in our lives. Because the more discipline we cultivate, the more we're able to live the way we'd like to live. The third consideration has to do with commitment. You know, how willing are we to make a commitment to ourselves? You know, it's funny when people talk about, say, they're they're beginning, you know, either meditation or mindfulness practice, sometimes the self-care practice. And if, you know, we ask them how it's going, you know, they might say something like, well, I do it when I can, or I do it when I remember. You know, someone might even say, you know, kind of brag and say, you know, over the past 14 days, 11 of those days, I did, I did the practice the way I wanted to do it, you know, and, and kind of, you know, aren't I doing well, this kind of thing. And to put this in context, contrast that to romantic commitment. Like if you're saying to your lover, how committed are you? And they say, well, I'm committed when I remember to be. I'm, I'm committed when, it, when, you know, when I have time for it, when it's convenient, you know, or, you know, 11 of the past 14 days, I was totally faithful to you, <laughs> you know, and I'm, you know, I'm being a bit silly here, but I want to point to, you know, it's just so funny to me how we have these celestial high expectations of what commitment looks like in a romantic relationship. And yet we have kind of these sloppy, half-assed, you know, ideas of what commitment is when we're talking about committing to ourselves, you know? And I think I'll say something very radical. Commitment is commitment, you know? And it doesn't matter if it's commitment to myself or to somebody else. Commitment is commitment. And whatever the standards are, those should be the standards, you know? And if I can't really commit to myself, Am I really going to be able to commit to anyone else? You know? And also, if, I'm, if I don't find myself worthy of committing to, how can I expect somebody else to consider me worthy to commit to? You know? Like, there are all these, these questions around it, you know? And it's funny. I think people... I think we all have a greater capacity for commitment than we give ourselves credit for. You know, and and certainly any kind of any kind of practice of discipline requires commitment to oneself. The final consideration about building more discipline has to do with courage. And here I'll distinguish between what I'll call small minded courage versus large-hearted courage. What I'm calling small-minded courage, we all have stories about what our limits are. We all have stories about how much I can handle. Small-minded courage is when I, I stick to whatever the story in my head is telling me. Okay, I think I can only go this far, so I'm only going to go that far, kind of thing. Large-hearted courage is when we trust we have a lot more strength and a lot more resilience than we understand. And, and being able to, to risk ourselves in that kind of courage. Um, and especially when it comes to internal explorations. I mean, 
the nature of the psyche is very much compensatory. This is this is Jung's idea, you know, that if there's a poison, there's an antidote. You know, if there's a if there's a challenge, there's also a strength to meet that challenge. And even even though ego is saying, I don't think I have the strength to meet that challenge, that strength is there. You know. So trusting that strength. I'll say that for, you know, of all the possible um, commitments we could make around self-care or around spiritual practice or anything, my own opinion about where it makes sense to, to focus energy at the beginning, I think it really makes sense to focus energy on anything that is quieting the mental chatter. Anything that is quieting the mental chatter and starting to cultivate the ability to hold silence in the mind. Because I think we, we powerfully underestimate how much the mental chatter drives neuroses, drives fears, drives anxieties, drives neurotic thinking, you know, etc., etc., and how much freedom we develop simply by being able to create some sort of breaks in the mental chatter. That, that is where I think, you know, if you're, if you're thinking of starting to move toward more discipline, that's where I think we get, as it were, the most bang for the buck, you know. So let's say that somebody starts, you know, has a certain amount of discipline and cultivates a certain amount of self-discipline they can get to a stage that, that I'll call, it's a stage of development that I'll call the walled city. You know, it's a stage when, um, say, earlier in life, I didn't feel so good about myself. Now, now there's a basic, you know, way of being that I, where I feel good about myself. Maybe earlier in life, I didn't have good boundaries. Now I have some good boundaries, you know. I'm comfortable with the story that I'm telling about myself, telling about my life comfortable, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and it's an important stage, and I would say it's a necessary stage to get to the walled city, you know. It's absolutely necessary to develop boundaries up to that level. Um, and I think sometimes it also happens, people get to the walled city, you know, prematurely, maybe when they're they're younger, they get to kind of a version of themselves that they're happy with, but it's very narrow. And then the world shatters them in some way. And then later on, they can construct another walled city or another, you know. So sometimes there is, you know, sort of shattering and reconfiguration that happens a few times. And I think this is a subtle difference between self-discipline and discipline as the paramita. And discipline as the paramita is when we start to, not when we're building up ego, but when we're starting to let go of ego. And and it's tricky because we have to build it up before we can, we can't give away anything we don't have, you know? Like, we have to build ego strength before we can surrender. You know, and one of the ways this plays out is with what I will call the diagnostic of our boundaries. And what do I mean by that? When we're when we're first developing boundaries, you know, of course we, you know, we're mammals. 
We like things that feel good. We like we don't like things that feel bad, you know. And so it's it's very natural that when we're first developing boundaries, our boundaries are all about what feels safe, what feels good, what feels unsafe, what doesn't feel good. And so we allow in the stuff that feels safe and good and we we block the stuff that doesn't feel safe and doesn't feel good. You know, and that that's incredibly natural that that that's how boundaries start out. At a certain point, though, it becomes tricky because a lot of the stuff that feels safe and good, of course, is, is healthy and wonderful, you know, love, appreciation, you know, all those things. But it might also be enabling, you know. It might also be something that is kind of neurotic but familiar, you know. It's this very funny way that, that we human beings again and again will, show, will choose familiar neuroticism and pain over unfamiliar growth, you know. And similarly, what's the stuff that feels unsafe and ungood? Well, of course, a lot of it is just going to be stuff that's not healthy, you know, toxic ways of looking at the world that, that you know, we do very well to, to block. But sometimes it's also a perspective or an idea or, or kind of feedback that is deeply true, but we're not ready to hear it yet. You know, like the deeply, the, the threatening deep truth is also something that feels unsafe. And you see, we're pushing away everything that's unsafe. We're pushing, you know, like throwing away the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. So our boundaries get, get much more subtle insofar as we have an appetite for truth, insofar as we have a, um, an ability to take in uncomfortable truth. And, and to, again, to some extent, we all do this. I mean, just part of being a functional adult. You know, we, we pay taxes, we pay rent, like car insurance. Like, there, you know, there's uncomfortable truth that we, we know how to negotiate. Um, one of the values of inner silence is that we start to get in touch with what I would call the resonant depth of the, of the psyche. For example, when I have a dream and I'm trying to, you know, what does this dream mean? And I'm, you know, could mean this, could mean this. Like head goes through a bunch of different, you know, perspectives or things that it could mean. Often I find, you know, it might be this, might be this, but then there's one that head chances on. Dream might mean this. But then for that one, it's suddenly like every bell up and down the channel rings. It's like, it's like this deep acknowledgement from, from the depths of the body. That's true, you know. And when we're, we're really attuned with ourselves, we can feel that deep resonance of something that lands as deeply true, you know. Sometimes it's something we read in a book. Sometimes it's something we hear and it's like, wow, that really resonates. And so it can be a uniquely challenging and uncomfortable experience when somebody tells us the truth that feels really uncomfortable and ego is saying, I don't want to hear that. But simultaneously, we're also having the feeling, but I think that's, that really feels true, you know? And that, I don't know how many of you have had that experience, you know, but that it's a uniquely uncomfortable experience when it's like, 
when I know, like, that's really uncomfortable, but I know I need to face it kind of thing. And a lot of that also has to do with our capacity. And really one of the, the, um, one of the most valuable disciplines we can have is a discipline around our capacity. Um, I have a, a wise friend who says the most important question in life is how big is your capacity? You know, how big an experience, how big an emotional energy can you hold while still, you know, maintaining touch with your heart, with your authenticity, that sort of thing. You know, when we, when we receive something that is within our capacity, then we can remain present with it. When something, when we're confronted with something larger than our capacity, then it overwhelms us and we go on automatic pilot and, you know. And the way that we grow our capacity is by having the practice every day of leaning into our edge, of leaning into what's uncomfortable, what's edgy, you know, and doing that over time Eventually, the thing that is at our edge, eventually we acclimate, and then that's within our capacity, and then we can lean into the next thing, you know. And, and especially having those moments when, you know, the, uncom- the thing is presented that is uncomfortable but feels like truth. Like, those are often very good things to lean into, you know. I know this is something I should be integrating, you know. Let me, you know, and I'm, I might not be able to dive into it all at once. And, you know, we need to be patient with ourselves. Some, you know, the way we build capacity is simply by leaning in as much as I can do today and leaning in as much as I can do tomorrow. But if we keep on doing that over time, our capacity grows. I'll say that a lot of self-discipline and a lot of discipline earlier sort of, you know, at earlier stages of, of spiritual development have to do with effort, you know, the effort of building new habits, the effort of breaking bad habits, you know, all of this. Um, a lot of the Buddha discipline has to do with letting go and surrendering, um, a, you know, a deep kind of allowing, sort of, a, you know, relaxing into allowing the world to be as it is. Um, you know, and ultimately allowing, allowing the very, um, the very assumptions that underlie ego itself to be called into question and dissolved. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. First, I'll share it with the the Zoomies. Take one for myself here. So the first couple quotes are from the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is a a text from the original Buddhist writings. The original Buddhist writings are called the Pali Canon. 
And uh, the funny thing, as I often say, if, you know, a full translation of the Pali Canon would fill a large bookcase. You know, it, it's a lot. And of course, every single sutra begins with the Buddha said. You know, there's there's no way that one human being could have said all of that. Um, but the Dhammapada scholars of religion feel that this is probably very close to what the historical Buddha actually said. It really, it's really a wonderful text, and it only takes you know about an hour or so to read. I would highly recommend the whole Dhammapada. But from the Dhammapada, the immature lose their vigilance, but the wise guard it as their greatest treasure. Again, more than your mother, more than your father, more than all your family, a well-disciplined mind does greater good. As irrigators lead water where they want, as archers make their arrows straight, as carpenters carve wood, the wise shape their mind. One who conquers himself is greater than another who conquers a thousand times a thousand men on the battlefield. A thousand times a thousand is a million. That would be a lot of men to conquer. A little math teacher comment there. Anyway. Um, Aristotle said we are what we repeatedly do excellence then is not an act but a habit you know and it really is the um, how can I say the deep and unsexy truth about life that what has the most profound effect on us is what we do every single day without fail you know we live in a culture that so likes dramatic, you know, I'm going to make the dramatic change, all that, you know, and usually the dramatic change doesn't, doesn't have lasting effects, you know, or, or in the few cases when it does, it's because the person is doing, you know, they're living a life of discipline anyway, and they can integrate it properly, you know, but it, it, we have a fantasy about the dramatic one time, you know, I'm going to make things better all at once, and it usually doesn't work that way. One of my favorite quotes from Rumi, be passionate for the friend's tyranny, not his tenderness, so the arrogant beauty in you can become a lover that weeps. John Locke said, the discipline of desire is the background of character. Goethe said, concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. Muhammad Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, said, With faith, discipline, and selfish devotion to duty, there is nothing worthwhile that you cannot achieve. Truman said, In reading the lives of great men, I found that the first victory they won was over themselves, Self-discipline with all of them came first. William Feather said, if we do not discipline ourselves, the world will do it for us. That one is ominous. Helen Keller said, one painful duty makes the next plainer and easier. Napoleon Hill said, if you do not conquer self, you will be conquered by self. 
Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said, Self-respect is the fruit of discipline. The sense of dignity grows with the ability to say no to oneself. Mandela said, Running taught me valuable lessons. In cross-country competitions, training counted more than intrinsic value, intrinsic ability, and I could compensate for a lack of natural aptitude with diligence and discipline. I applied this in everything I did. Wonderful woman Maya Angelou said, Courage is the most important of all the virtues, because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. You can practice any virtue erratically, but nothing consistently without courage. MLK said quite simply, the time is always right to do what is right. That one is really simple and really easy to underestimate. That that one is deep. Joanna Macy said, so far as Buddhism is concerned, I find that Western Buddhists go for peace of mind. And that is such an inadequate response. Jim Rome said, We must all suffer one of two things, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret and disappointment. Jose Eduardo de Santos said, There is no magic wand that can resolve our problems. The solution rests with our work and our discipline. Jack Cornfield said simply, the trouble is that you think you have time. Mm. Julia Alvarez said, each one of us will have to make choices that allow us to be the largest version of ourselves. You know, and it's a wonderful question. What is the largest version of myself? And what would it mean to walk toward that? What's the most noble version of myself? Sharon Salzberg said, if we fail, we don't need to be we don't need self-recrimination or blame or anger. We need a reawakening of our intention and our and a willingness to recommit to be wholehearted once again. David White in a seminar during the pandemic said, and that is one of the great disciplines of existence. One of the great disciplines of existence is just to stay up with the frontier of your own maturation to have said goodbye to what you need to say goodbye to and to be saying hello to what you should be saying hello to. But caught in the enmeshments of the strategic mind, which coalesces its identity around false stories and holds on to them, quite often we're good six or seven years behind where we actually are. Tony Robbins says, I believe life is constantly testing us for our level of commitment. And life's greatest rewards are reserved for those who demonstrate a never-ending commitment to act until they achieve. This level of resolve can move mountains, but it must be constant and consistent. It's as as simplistic as it sounds, it is the common denominator separating those who live their dreams from those who live in regret. Daniel Goldstein says, I think self-discipline is something, it's like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. Race Mimenikin, I quoted this before. Self-discipline is self-love. Show me the person who is not disciplined, and I will show you a person who doesn't love themselves. And Charles Eisenstein said, true discipline is really just self-remembering. No forcing or fighting is necessary. 